As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Does Valencia seem like a long time to you? I think it might do to us. This is the Race Motor GP podcast and we asked for your questions about the 2023 season and what's coming up in 2024. It's nearly a month now since the title fight ended with Jorge Martin tangling with Mark Marquez and sending them both through the Valencia gravel. We've had testing to kick off anticipation for next season and that seismic Mark Marquez moves to Ducati. There's an awful lot to get our teeth into. And that was reflected in the questions that you sent us. We had an absolute bundle of them on all kinds of topics i'm matt beer with me to answer them are simon patterson and val harinci as usual i was going to say everyone's a little bit rested after valencia but i i don't think anybody actually is simon's fresh from a savage chest infection everyone looks maybe a little bit more awake than we do at uh, 9 p.m on a sunday night post race but um yeah this uh this has been a this has been a long year um before we start Lots of questions we have put aside because they fit in really rather nicely to episodes we've got planned for the coming weeks. So we will be doing a top 10 rider debate. That won't include any of your questions. That'll just include us arguing with each other. But we've also got a Larry prediction special coming up to start 2024. And quite a few of the questions you've asked fit that one rather nicely. So if you don't get yours answered today, keep an ear out for that in the coming weeks. And we've also been chatting to Dan Rossomondo from Dorna and putting some of your other questions to him for an episode that will be all about the MotoGP the MotoGP fan experience, MotoGP on TV, how it can keep growing, maybe even new manufacturers, the calendar, basically everything about MotoGP and its profile and growth. So that'll be coming up in the new year as well. And if you've asked questions on those themes, we uh, we will be answering those in that episode. So those are the things we're not going to be answering about, but we've got an awful lot that we are going to be answering. So Val and Simon poised with your hands for who wants to uh, answer this first we're going to start with one from dan from darlington who is always a fantastic contributor to these questions episodes um he sent in a voice note dan a few of your questions we're holding back to answer elsewhere but um here's one we're going for on frankie morbidelli's future with Aldeguer seemingly being sized up for a Pramac seat in 2025, um, is Morbidelli just sort of a stopgap in that seat at the moment? Or is there any way that he can keep his seat at the end of next year? Uh, kind of related to that question, Nick Barrett from Wales asked, how has Morbidelli managed to kick out and end up on a Pramac Ducati? Which is a question I, I asked you guys mid-season, because that is uh, certainly... One, one, a move you could call failing upwards, given everything that happened at Yamaha. Nick adds, will we see the Morbidelli of old? So, who wants to go first on this? Is Morbidelli just, just a stopgap for Pramac, realistically? Val? Uh, yeah, I don't think so, necessarily. That doesn't mean that he's going to... That doesn't mean he's definitely going to get an extension beyond 2024. And we've not really seen anything meaningful about his capability in the Ducati yet. He didn't speak to the media after the Valencia test. The lap times looked you know competitive as they do but not not so competitive to where you'd immediately feel very good about his upcoming season but also we don't know how hard he pushed how hard he you know how hard he tried how hard he prepared uh that doesn't mean he didn't work hard but just you know valencia is cold you don't really want to send it down the road in your first day with ducati i i don't think he's a stopgap despite pramac's widely reported interest in in running Fermin Aldeguer because i don't think Fermin Aldeguer is in line for that seat. 
And the way I see it is Jorge Martin is not staying at Pramac in 2025. That's that's the part that seems abundantly clear to me. I don't really see a scenario where Jorge Martin's Ducati career continues with another one or even two years of a satellite team after next season. I just I don't see it, even if they can continue to offer him the same salary, the same machinery, whatever. We know Ducati salaries aren't the most competitive in MotoGP. We know they're you know very famously heavily bonus laden and without like a very strong base. At least that's that's what's been widely reported. And we know that Jorge Martin feels himself extremely worthy of a factory seat and is somebody who recognizes the the prestige and the importance of being a factory rider in factory colors doing all the factory bits getting to uh, getting to fly factory first class blah 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 that kind of thing um he's going to have factory suitors for 2025 and if that suitor isn't the cat he's going to be somebody else that Pramac seat is going to be open for somebody now the question is whether Fermin Aldeguer definitely slots into that seat or whether I don't know his Moto2 season is really bad or something or whether they do promote him, him being Jorge Martin, to the Works Ducati team. And then maybe an Bastianini is a contender for Pramac, and he would probably look at that. Maybe Marco Bezzecchi can be swayed, although he's another rider I really very much suspect will be a factory rider somewhere in 2025. So this is why I don't think that necessarily having a rider earmarked for Pramac is, a, is an immediate huge problem for Morbidelli, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's anything, there's no such thing as a sure thing anymore, anywhere in MotoGP. That, that's just the reality of it. Um, Morbidelli, is he a stopgap? Yes, maybe. But at the same time, he's as much of a stopgap as, as literally every other rider in the grid because everyone is instantly replaceable. You know, we're, we're talking about Fermin Aldegar going to MotoGP next season already, but. You know, I can list a half a dozen riders who've had streaks of form in Moto2, but it's come at the wrong time and their career has stagnated afterwards. I mean, look at Celestino Vietti, look at Lorenzo Baldassari, who you know both went on winning streaks too early in the season, essentially, didn't get anything from it. And now are, you know, one of them's a mid-pack Moto2 rider and the other's in World Supersport. It, it, it's so hard to predict where anyone is going to go and what, you know what anyone's form is going to be because the reality of the thing is that MotoGP teams are sometimes really quite short-sighted in that the hot young property who is hot right now is the one that gets signed. And I mean, that anything can happen with that. That that works for Marbidelli, it works against him, it works for Aldegar, it works against him. Yeah, I'm. it's way, way, way too early to make predictions about that. Now, in terms of the question of how Morbidelli ended up on a better ride than his factory Yamaha, well, I mean, you know, part of that obviously has been well documented by now. It's, you know, Marco Bezzecchi didn't want the ride. Because Marco Bezzecchi was supposed to vacate the VR46 Ducati ride that Franco Morbidelli would have then taken by virtue of his existing relationship with, you know, program head Valentino Rossi. So it would have been, would have been very simple. Bezzecchi wanted to stay at VR46 with his established team. So there was, a, there was room at Pramac because Johan Zarco basically realized he wasn't as wanted as he was elsewhere and there's the room one of the best seats in MotoGP suddenly opens up and boom Morbidelli gets it but also part another part of that I think is Morbidelli gets a little bit too much flack at this point in his career for for the quality of his Yamaha stint like I think we've we've overcorrected I think we've 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 shot the moon there basically uh he was okay this season he was basically in line of acceptable for second factory rider. He was I don't think they're wrong to replace him with Alex Rins. I think, you know, his his time did run out and that relationship did seem to run out, but he wasn't dismally far off of Fabio Quartararo, particularly in the first part of the season, until Quartararo started to press that sort of mostly qualifying advantage. But even then we've seen that Franco Morbidelli can be quite a good qualifier in other circumstances. It's I don't particularly like the framing of, you know, Morbidelli of old and Morbidelli of new, even though it's one I sometimes also use because obviously the the knee injury that seems to have split his MotoGP career in two, it's a very handy shorthand to use when talking about him. And I'm I'm it has clearly influenced things, obviously. But I 
I don't know he's as he's not as bad right now as people say. I also don't think he was ever as good as people were under the impression of. That 2020 season, he was the only Yamaha rider with the good Yamaha. Yeah, this is this is my Morbidelli stance at the moment, and it's sort of crystallized over the last few weeks. And when we did the ranking of the 2024 rider lineups on the race website recently, it kind of occurred to me that maybe my faith in Morbidelli ever being top, top line was based on two months at the end of 2020 and some very particular circumstances where a lot of things were in his favor and oh he he capitalized he controlled some races from the front in absolute masterful style he was doing Jorge Lorenzo type stuff uh, on those on those days but when you look at the I mean I am not as much of a scholar of Moto2 form as you two you are the absolute experts on this podcast compared to me on that front but I I would say the narrative of Morbidelli's career had has had two blips in different directions. One was this massive end of 2020 peak and one was the mess of 2022 and everything else has kind of been along a, a line of fine. Yeah, not bad certainly, but yeah, 2020 was a an aberration upwards. Fair? Fine is harsh, I think. For fine, <laughs> I I don't like the word fine because his Moto2 title was good. Just really good. I thought it was, it was just a really, really good season. Even not just in the fact that he won the championship, but I think by standard of Moto Two titles, he was just legitimately the best rider that year, which isn't always the case. So I think better than fine. But I am also generally in that sort of frame of mind. I'm going to ban much more 2025 rider market chat in this podcast because I intend for us to go absolutely insane on that sometime during January in an episode that will come back to haunt us when we make predictions that don't come true. But I'm going to hold you to it anyway. So uh, this is a little we had a little toe in the water of what might happen in the 2025 rider market. But we're going to talk about that so much next year. I think we should try to back away from it through the rest of the episode but hopefully nick and dan that has given you a few of our thoughts on why morbidelli is at pramac and and how he might get on let's move on to shana who is from australia and is a fan of pies and ice breaks uh, shana says how do you think did you fabio de Giantonio will fit into his new team vr46 now this is this is an interesting one because until as well as moves and there are a few of those in this silly season until it happened it didn't seem likely, and the indications from VR46 was it wasn't one they were really that keen on happening. But that is where Digia, the end-of-season hero, is lining up for next year. So how will he fit into his new team, Simon? I think he's going to struggle a little bit more at VR46 than he has at Grassini. Um, he is very much an outsider going into a closed ship, and I, I think that as a result of that, he is, is kind of perpetually going to be the stepchild next season. Um, the VR46 camp is a great place to be if you're a VR46 rider, but if you're an outsider, and and I don't just mean this in terms of of the actual riders, but the you know the whole group of people there. If you're an outsider in that team, it seems like it can be quite a tough place. Actually, it it's quite you know they're very set in their ways. They've done things the way they've always done them for a long time now. And to go in there, whenever you hear some stories from various people, whenever you go in there from from an outside perspective, it can be a very, very family team, almost to its detriment, if that makes sense. And yeah, yeah. DJ is going to come up against that. He's he's you know, especially if he doesn't get like we think fully integrated into the whole VR 46 camp in that he's living in Tavilla and training at the ranch every weekend. If, you know, if he's the first guy to really ever ride for VR 46, who's not in the Academy program as well, it's, it's going to be a real awesome them thing. Um, yeah, he, he'll manage it because he's a likable, personable guy and he'll kind of carve out his own space within his own side of the garage and everything. But, um, it's, it's not going to be the easiest transition in the world. It's not going to be going from the Grissini Moto2 team that he loved to the Grissini Moto GP team, for example. Yeah, I'm, I'm in a similar camp, and I am also a bit worried by the fact that before Digio was signed, you know, VR46, Ucho Salucci specifically, were on record as him not being the first choice or really even seemingly particularly the second choice or even particularly on the radar before... Fermin Aldeguer proved too expensive and Digius form proved too good to ignore. I think he was a signing that was, you know, right place, right time. And you, you could have picked somebody else and it, you know, 
his form was good, but it was it was two or three months of form. But I think because of what we've seen from Digia and MotoGP, the way for this move to really work and to really pay off for everybody, but specifically for Digia, he really he needs to be integrated. And he needs to he needs to be going to the ranch and he needs to be sort of properly seriously invited into the family, I think, for him to feel comfortable and for VR46 to get the most out of him. Now the question of whether whether that will then be enough for an imagined future conflict of interest where Celestino Vietti, another Valentino Rossi protege, has to make his way to MotoGP finally, how that's going to play out, how the priorities will happen, what if Franco Morbidelli needs room because Ducati has found somebody else for Pramac, what if Marco Bezzecchi wants to stay still, it's, it's, it's complicated. It's still a complicated situation, but at the same time, it is a luxury problem for Digia because we thought he'd be off the grid. So, you know, at the very least, the, those problems are still distant. For now, mission accomplished. For now, breathe easy, relax, and get to know your new team. Yeah, I, I think I do think there's a there's a strong potential that Digia's MotoGP career might have peaked in, in recent months. Um, but I still think that is a higher peak than you would have predicted, certainly when he was struggling in, in his rookie season. And yeah, who knows what will happen next? I think your your wariness is is well-founded. You know, the whole VR46 project has been about getting a queue of riders to come through and for some some reasons to do with kind of timing and oddness elsewhere, that queue has been in, has been interrupted. There wasn't someone to slot right in at that point, but that queue will continue. So it is an uncomfortable position for DJ to be in. But you know he's he's achieved something against the odds already so let's let's see what happens actually the the weird thing is that that queue isn't that full behind him that that's the weird thing about it um the, there's there's suddenly no vr46 riders in you know junior gp and moto3 that like vietti's the last one left that's not in moto gp yeah true and it, it's i've been thinking about this a little bit recently like i'm i'm not sure what the future of the academy is because it was never set up to develop young Italian talent. It was set up to give Valentino Rossi people to train with. You know, it was set up for, at the end of the day, quite selfish motives. <laughs> um, it's, it's you know, we've used the Peter Pan and the Lost Boys uh, metaphor in the past. And, and that is kind of what it was. And now that there's not a need for him to have that group of people around him to train with, it almost feels like it's starting to be wound down a little bit. And I, I don't know what that means for the future. You know, we've also heard persistent rumors that they're looking at becoming a Yamaha satellite team in the near future. Um, if that's the case, Yamaha will not have a system where they only take VR46 Academy riders. Yamaha want to develop talent from across the board, as we've already seen with the, the Master Camp team in Moto2 that VR46 are running for Yamaha. Um, I, I think... Maybe there's there's not the longest term future for this whole project in the form that it's in right now. And if that is the case, then DGA is is probably the precursor of change. And and maybe that's even more reason to embrace him and to like to try and make something work with him because it, it's then it becomes a you know a, a way to work in the future. Yeah, that's a good point. It's interesting as well because by the time the people who Rossi has brought in through VR46 stop winning MotoGP races and MotoGP titles, Rossi's going to be pretty old. You know, with, with Pekko Banyar, with Marco Pazeki in particular, the, things are well set for a, a good VR46 legacy for a, a long time now. And yeah, I guess there is a point at which, you know, do you commit to trying to pump through 20 years of Italian talent or because you've set up this project, like say Simon, potentially a little bit by default to give yourself some playmates. Yeah, he's he's kind of achieved the goal of set up the next generation, won some more titles um, with them. Let's go on to another Italian who is not VR46, which is a, a rarity at the moment. Um, and this is a little bit of a rider market question, but it's more about 2024 performance. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep it in this episode. So Eliza asks, uh, I was wondering, what do you think are the chances for Bastianini keeping his factory Ducati seat after 2024? What kind of scenario do you see where this is most likely? And if he's not at the factory Ducati team, do you see him going to Pramac or trying his wings elsewhere? And there's a couple of companion questions from that. Uh, Dan from Darlington, we're not going to play that clip of yours, but you asked that in your audio file as well. And on X, Arib Siddiqui um, said, should basically, should Jorge Martin already have an Ear Bastianini's factory Ducati ride? The latter one is some, something we've debated quite a lot on the podcast this season, but I'm happy to let Simon and Val, Val in particular, make vociferous points on that front again. Um, but first of all, 
the the main question from Eliza what has to happen for Bastianini to keep that factory Ducati ride what sort of performance is required because yeah we, we had that amazing Sepang wing but after that Sepang win everything went back downhill again so who wants to go first on this one uh yeah I, I think it's it, it, it is easy to imagine a scenario where he does keep the factory ride I don't think it's a complete no-go I think he just has to be good out of the blocks on the on the on the newer Ducati which seems to be more towards his liking than the previous one. It's something he said. It's something Peko Bagnaia also seems to have noticed that, you know, the the added comfort on the braking basically will will make a huge difference on, on corner entry. Um that it it's not really that impossible. I know it feels sort of like he's a lame duck waiting to be replaced by Jorge Martin or Marc Marquez, and that is probably where things are trending. But there's there's still enough races at the start of 2024 where on, honestly all he needs to do is sow a bit of doubt because then I think Mark Marquez will find himself another suitor or if Mark Marquez doesn't Jorge Martin I think if he starts seeing Ducati try to make its mind up between Bastianini and Martin oh yeah then he'll I think not appreciate that very much at all because there's already been a couple of instances where he's gone up against Bastinini in various Ducati decision-making processes and lost out. Um, I think he doesn't have to be incredible to keep it. And if, if Beko Bagna is still doing the trick as the number one rider, and Air Bastinini just a bit closer to his 2022 level, for me, that would be enough. So I, I don't think Mark Marquez is a threat at all to a factory Ducati seat for anyone next season. Um, I think if Mark Marquez, if he wins at Grissini, his 2025 options will either be keep winning at Grissini or look at another manufacturer. Um, I don't, I, I just, I don't know. For me, Mark Marquez just doesn't fit into the Ducati factory setup. Um, I, I think there's, there's more on offer for him. There's more interesting opportunities. I I don't think a Honda return in 2025 is impossible if that bike is as good as it looks. Um, I think there's a KTM option there that that will be his first priority. But um, I I think for Bastianini that the opposition is going to come from Jorge Martin, and the reality is that you know. It goes back to what we said about being answering Dan's first question about being strong at the right time of the season. Martin had a, a fairly lackluster start to this year and then sort of dug in and got better. Um, if we have a similar situation where it takes him a few races to get going and Bagnaia or Bastianini's looking stronger, it, it, it would be very easy decision for Ducati to just keep the status quo. Uh, there's also the fact that Martin is. I think driven a little, I don't want to be mean here, but I think he's driven a little bit by ego. And if it looks like they're favoring uh, Bastianini again, he's going to look elsewhere. He's he's going to talk to KTM. He's going to talk to Aprilia, especially with Alicia Spagaro there. You know, there's a big link that, that sort of bridges him to there. Um, I think there's a, there's a possibility that he won't be a Ducati rider at all in I think, actually think there's as much chance that he won't be a Ducati rider as there is of him getting the factory seat. Um, it's 50-50 right now for me. I don't think that's mean at all. I think that's statement of fact, basically. I think from everything Jorge Martinez said about being overlooked for the Ducati factory seat, it really weighs on him. He really doesn't like it. He really doesn't appreciate very much the way in which he's been deprioritized relative to other riders in the Ducati family. So if he sees another situation like the one that's unfolded, even if it's one that's maybe a lot likelier to swing in his way finally, I can't, it's, it's not just a Jorge Martin thing. MotoGP riders want to feel like they're the one, like they're wanted, like they're your number one choice. Nobody wants to be second choice or even choice 1.5, even option 1B. They'll take it if they have to, but being option one is always better. Johan Zarco, why is he at Honda? Yeah, they're paying him more, but also they made it very clear they wanted him and Ducati didn't. Yeah, I don't think um, ego is an insult in in, the, in this context. I think if you if you have the self-belief to get yourself to MotoGP in the first place, you have to be the kind of character where it won't sit well if a team snubs you for someone else when 
you can make a compelling case that you shouldn't have been snubbed. And I think in both the matchups where Martins come out second best to Bastianini in, in Ducati's decisions, it would have been a close call. And I can see Martins' point. Um, also, I, for me, I can see Bastianini keeping this ride. Like you guys say, it wouldn't take a lot. You know, he... It's a combination of the fact he is ultimately very good and looked very good at Grassini and this was an aberration of a season with a bike that didn't suit him, that he didn't get much time to adapt to because he kept being broken. Um, but also, perhaps more compellingly, there's, this, there's always this thing of if a rider is winning titles for a team, do you want to be that rider's teammate? Banyaya is everything Ducati needs in that seat at the moment. Would you want to go into his team? He's not maybe the most intimidating character in some ways to share a garage with, but that's not really the point. He's, he's, he's Ducati's established number one right now. But the element of default as well, Martin probably will want to go somewhere else if he's snubbed again. Bezecchi has already declined to move out of VR46 once. Bastianini could do okay and keep that seat because bizarrely, for the best seat on the grid, no one else actually wants it. Hi, producer Johnny here. Interrupting the show momentarily to tell you about Roan, a clothes brand we think you'd like. I don't know about you, but finding clothes you like can be tough. Sizes can vary from brand to brand, and fabrics can be poor quality or uncomfortable. We all know a good outfit can impact your confidence and help you feel your best, and that's where Roan comes in. Their range of stylish, functional, business casual menswear helps you look good without having to think about it. It's versatile, high quality and durable, and works in a range of social and professional settings. Roan's commuter collection includes products for every occasion, including the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, polos and blazers. It also features, and get this, wrinkle release technology and gold fusion anti-odor technology for more wears between washes, so you'll be fresh and clean all day long. Roan were kind enough to send me a shirt and some pants from the commuter collection, and I can tell they're gonna be part of my wardrobe for a long time to come. The commuter collection could get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. Head to roan.com forward slash race and use promo code race to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to rhone.com forward slash race and use code race. It's time to find your corner office comfort. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. next question from elizabeth is about something that i i get a kind of strange almost allergic reaction to as a concept but that's only because i don't want to be doing too much quick maths in my head during a race i think the point elizabeth is about to make is quite an interesting one so she says firstly thank you for the podcast it's always enjoyable and makes my commute to work more bearable it's our pleasure happy to help with that um hope we're making bus or train rides or drives uh, a little bit better for many people um, this year, says Elizabeth, we've noticed so many riders sitting out races with injuries or riding when they aren't fully fit. So my question is, would a nominated round system work in MotoGP? So she's saying dropped scores essentially here. For example, in a 22 round championship, you have 18 rounds you can nominate to score points in. That way, riders can miss some rounds and heal injuries without compromising their championship. And Elizabeth also says that she hopes we enjoy a well-deserved break after a very long season. And that's a sentiment that is definitely appreciated by our traveling team in particular. So what do we think of Elizabeth's idea? Nominate 18 out of 22 rounds to score in. So you've got a little bit of... Uh, injury leeway what do we think uh, so you know a historic concept a, a time proven concept in a way drop scores obviously for back when championships couldn't really necessarily fully rely on attendance in every round and also reliability played such a huge role um i i'm gonna go out of limb here and suggest that none of us here present like drop scores i can't stand drop scores i see the point but i cannot stand drop scores ditto yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's it's you know, just the biggest hurdle, the, the biggest hurdle always is it just really wrecks title deciders. Like once you get to that part of the part of the season, the maths that you have to do on the fly 
you can do them, but even like journalists and even journalists who like looking at standings <laughs> and calculating things, which is like one percent of journalists, of which I am one, um, they it, it gets hard. It gets hard even when you like it. it it's difficult, and for for the casual fan, it's it's an it's just a no go. It it's you know it's it's just a really difficult concept to explain. You can, you can explain it, but then it's a really difficult concept to, to feel on the fly and to sort of explain all the permutations of. So that would be that would be a big hurdle. For me, the, the bigger issue, though, is philosophical, because I guess you can get over that sort of thing. But that's that's not how we should be answering the injury question. If, if, if MotoGP is suddenly cognizant that it has an injury problem and it makes a move to solve that in terms of the point standings, but doesn't actually touch the factors of what's causing the injuries, that's that would be an admission of failure. That would be an absolutely wrong set of priorities. We can't we can't really accept a long-term situation where riders get hurt at this rate. It doesn't I, I think it doesn't work as a championship. And I think more than that, we we do well not to incentivize riders to be even more gung-ho about hurting themselves which drop scores in this scenario potentially do. So I I, re- I genuinely do really very much understand the appeal. It would it would stink quite a bit if there was a, a title fight separated by one point coming into round 19 and then somebody broke a collarbone training. Yeah, it'd not be good. But if, if this is sort of a panacea to the high injury rates, it doesn't actually solve the high injury rates. People still get hurt and entertainment's important and close championship battles are important, but we always should prioritize just you know, having a healthy grid of healthy riders whose lives are more secure than they maybe are right now. And certainly then, then they would be if we just continued at this kind of injury rate further and further and further. So I, I'm kind of going to agree with Val, but in a slightly more cynical way and saying that the championship that unilaterally introduced sprint races and has been largely responsible for this injury toll has absolutely no desire to reduce the amount of drama that's built up at the end of a season. They wanted to go down to the wire at every round. Uh, you know, they want every race to feel like a title decider and that can't happen with dropped scores. So there's just no way that they're going to, you know, it would be, it would be completely uh, opposite to everything we've seen from Dorna and the way that they run MotoGP if they brought in something like this that that actually reduced the drama and reduced the tension because we know they like ramping it up. Um, if they want to fix injury races, half the number of sprint races, like there's the starting point right there, not the um, not some sort of a dropped score situation that that just like Val says confuses everyone and makes things more complicated and and doesn't really work to help anyone yeah i think all three of us enjoy heavy use of spreadsheets in our in our work for for various things but when there's a title decider unfolding i was very glad of the dawn the graphic on the screen that was constantly changing the points gap between martin and banyard through those last few rounds but um i don't even envy the ai algorithm doing that if it's also subtracting and deleting lines from it cells from its spreadsheet well or doing that yeah you know, i find it hard enough this sounds pathetic but i find it hard enough in the moment to remember what the sprint points were and actually as val may point out i miscalculated the actual grand prix scoring system the other day when working out our original 2024 riders uh, rider lineups ranked feature so yeah i don't need more complication um in my life but like elizabeth says like val said in the injury rate has had a massive impact we're very lucky that the injury rate didn't have a bigger impact on the title fight it was a lucky it was banyai got battered at times this season and was riding semi-injured it's remarkable he didn't miss a race or two and that could have that could have really swung things so Drop scores probably aren't the right answer from an entertainment and accessibility point of view. But if we get another season as brutal as 2023 in 2024, something something has to change. You know, this is not we, we accept that sports involve injuries. You know, foot, it's, it's, you have substitutes in football and you have injury lists in football because you expect people to get hurt playing football. The potential for what those injuries could be in MotoGP with the speeds involved and the violence of the machinery is you know, magnitudes more. You won't ever remove that, but if something about the current format, as some of us suspect, is making those injuries more likely, then you've got to take it seriously if this carries on into into next year, and I, I do fear it might. 
Um, next question. Two of them about Maverick Vinales. I'm going to bundle into one. Um, Neil from Leyland in the UK says he absolutely loves the show, which we very much appreciate. And his question is about Vinales and specifically why he always dominates pre-season testing, then comes up short when it matters, brackets, relatively speaking. Is this a mental thing or something else? And alongside Motorcycle Hustle on X asked a very similar question with a kind of sub-question of do we see Aprilia keeping him beyond 2024? That is a rider market question. Again, I am going to allow it. Um, we will t- put our toe into that. Val, you should answer this first, though, because you recently wrote a column on why you are not giving up on Maverick Vinales, which I, I thoroughly enjoyed. So why does this happen? Why is Vinales the king of testing and why does it why does it not translate? I mean, if, if I fully had the answer to that, then I would sell that answer to him for, for a princely sum of money. Um, I think if he had the answer to that, then he'd either win three or four MotoGP titles already or would have retired by now because he realizes he he cannot fix this particular situation. Um, I think, I mean, part of it is clearly just skill set, right? So part of it is the guys that is most comfortable when he's not running in a pack and he's not a, he's never been a great starter in MotoGP or at least for most of his MotoGP career, he's been a distinctly subpar starter and a slightly meek, slightly i think is kind meek opening lap presence let's be honest here but where when there's a clear track and especially when there's a clear track and it doesn't count for as much he's 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 fantastic and part of that is i i suspect he does have a different approach to testing with this cruise i think he maybe puts more of a premium on putting a, a really good lap on the board than some of the other guys do i think that has to be a part of it because if you compare the stats i think he stopped something like I counted this and I would have to recount it to be super. So yeah, he stopped 17 pre and off season tests. So that's a lot. That's a a genuinely bewildering amount. That is statistically freakish. I know it doesn't, it might not sound like much, but trust me, it's, it's enormous. It's a a huge amount. Um, I think, you know, part of the skill set, if MotoGP again, as I said, was rallying on a circuit, if there were no other bikes around, if it was just a time attack, sort of mode, I think he'd, he'd do quite well. Uh, I see probably hate hearing that, but you know, Celevi, that's just what it, that's just what it looks like. It, it has to be partially a mental thing for sure. Uh, he doesn't seem to love racing on the Dunlop rubber specifically, the Dunlop rubber that Moto2 lays down before the MotoGP races. That seems to sap something from him and maybe change the way the track is in a way that doesn't really work for him, which Next year we won't have. We'll have Michelin rubber. We'll see how that is. It Michelin Pirelli. Ah, Jesus Christ. We'll have Pirelli rubber. Sorry. That will um, interact differently and maybe more to Maverick's liking. But also, he's just not a very incisive guy, wheel to wheel at the moment, right? He's he's the rider that you maybe have one of the lowest levels of confidence for in terms of pulling off an overtake. So I, I often mention this podcast, like our internal work chat, our Slack channel and, and things said in there during the weekend. Without fail, Maverick Vinales pulling off an aggressive overtaking move is the thing that gets all three of us typing going, look at that, that actually happened. Vinales overtook someone aggressively. Uh, but I don't think there's anything else that gets us guaranteed a universal response from all three of us as, as that um, that little unicorn happening. Again, I'm not trying to, like, a lot of the... A lot of the feature I wrote was actually basically like dunks that I came up with and just an excuse to, to use some of the some of the jokes I workshopped in, in Slack in, in a feature. <laughs> but I, I, the talent is huge. The guy can really push a motorcycle for a lap time and he, he can really pull out some majestic lap times. He's a great rider. I, I know he can be a bit of a punchline sometimes. I know he has very obvious deficiencies and there's nothing more frustrating, I think, in racing than a driver or rider who is capable of greatness, but there are huge deficiencies that are just always present and always rear their head. And Maverick Vinales is the rider that you're least confident in always in terms of following up a Good Friday practice result and converting Good Friday practice pace into actual points on Sunday. Right now, you're the least confident about that compared to any other rival, rider on the MotoGP grid. I can't genuinely can't think of anybody else. Raul Fernandez, maybe. I know it's an Aprilia, a bit of an Aprilia thing, but it's specifically very clearly a Maverick Vinales thing. But he's super talented. And he's, he's a, honestly, in terms of talent, I would not be surprised if he's the closest we have 
or maybe had before Fabio in terms of like an alien level talent, genuinely. I think he's super, super, super talented. I think his second season on the Suzuki was marvelous. And nothing has happened to where I think that's just completely unextractable. So I still believe. I want to believe. And I believe. I don't believe, but I'm going to let Simon come in first before I get all grumpy. Maverick's problem is almost that he's in the wrong era of MotoGP. If he was riding like an 800 or an early version of these bikes, whenever it was, you know, the Lorenzo era, and you could win races by just getting to the front and clearing off, he'd be a multiple-time world champion. But the whole arrow forcing you to fight thing, or, or making it, you know, incredibly difficult to run your own race, that, you know, has flummoxed lots of people on that, on the Yamaha in particular. Um, and the Aprilia has some of the same characteristics as the Yamaha that makes it a bit of an issue there too. Um, you kind of work against him and such as such as his cross to bear um looking at his future i think by the time the podcast goes online there should be a feature interview with massimo rivola published on the site that that i've written up in the last few days and it it's it's fair to say that there is a big vote of confidence in everything val has just said about maverick's abilities from Aprilia management you know they believe that the best is still to come they still very much trust in him and i think looking ahead uh you know that's sort of job security for him i think he's going to be okay on the basis of you know if one of the aprilia writers is going to leave at the end of 2024 it's probably going to be a retiring alicia spagaro and they will want a bit of continuity they will want someone to stay on as part of the current team and i think maverick you know he's doing enough and he's done enough that aprilia are happy to to take that bet on him Unless Raul Fernandez and Miguel Oliveira both have like absolutely fabulous 2024 seasons. I think you're spot on with that point you made at the start there, Simon. I can sit, totally see Vinales on an 800 qualifying on pole and clearing off and dominating races. Yeah, absolutely. Trouble is, that's not the era he's in. He's in this era. I was a massive fan of what he was doing early in his career as he came towards MotoGP and, and then his initial stint. I thought he'd be a huge success at Yamaha. But looking at it now, all these years on, what can you what what can you count on Vinales for? He's a guy who could be very very quick in testing, and if you want someone to uh, catastrophically leave a team mid season, he's got a great way of knowing how to do that. He's he's like he's nailed that skill. But um, yeah, I just I don't see I, I don't see his career going upwards from from here. We we know where we stand with Vinales now, and it's it's not what it was. It's not what we hoped. Um, I did say very confidently when Simon was mentioning his Massimo Rivola interview that it would be on the site by the time this podcast comes out. I'm going to backtrack from that slightly on the grounds that during December, when we're balancing a lot of off-season content, the order in which things are published on podcast videos and the site can be all over the place. So if it's not out by the time you listen to this, it will be out very soon. But I'm not going to maybe say that with complete certainty. But one thing that is already on on the race website um, is Val's piece that we've trailed about uh, Vinales. Uh, testing pace not translating so if you, if you haven't read that yet give it a little search for why i still can't give up on moto gp's ridiculed testing king which is also one of my favorite headlines of the year and now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream direct tv satellite free you see this a family watching baseball on direct tv with no satellite dish in sight let's heckle them you call that changing the channel choke up on the remote buddy i hope getting all these games on direct tv makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds direct tv has the most mlb games visit directtv.com claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher availability of rsn's varies by zip code and package high-speed internet service required terms and restrictions apply so our next question we go back into the voice note pot and this is from oliver in south london hello matt hello simon and hello val in the grand scheme of things i'm quite new to MotoGP, but i've really been drawn in over the last few years this year i really enjoyed how the title battle ramped up nicely over the course of the season coming down to a dramatic finale between two riders with completely different approaches But if you take the two title contenders out of the equation, which of the six other 2023 race winners took the most impressive victory for you? And as a bonus question, which was your personal favourite? Keep up the good work. Right, that's a fun question. I I like the pick your best kind of approach. So Simon, your hand shot up first. Who who was the most impressive race winner outside the title contenders? And was that your favourite race winner or was there another? Um, Most impressive race winner this season, I think, was Alex Rins. 
because he did something when no one expected it on a bike that no one expected to win anything this year. I mean, if if you said 12 months ago that the only Japanese rider to win a race in 2023 would have been Alex Rins, you would have been laughed at. But here we are. It's the reality. Um, I still don't really know how he managed to do it. No. Because it just, it's one of those things that just shouldn't have been. It 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 is... Obviously, he is very, very good at the Circuit of the Americas, and obviously the Honda works really well there. But whenever Mark Marquez went home in disgust after being injured like five times in like 36 hours at the Saxon Ring, um, it makes what Alex Rins did even more special. So for, for me, that is win of the year. Um, in terms of win that I enjoyed the most this year, I think, Probably Johan Zarco finally breaking the dock and getting a victory. Really nice to see just because he deserved it. And, you know, realistically, it's probably not going to happen for the foreseeable future in Honda. So I'm glad he gets to not be the most successful MotoGP rider of all time, not to win a race. All right, so annoyingly, Simon did sort of take the, <laughs> the two answers that I wanted to <laughs> wanted to give. Why do you think my hand went up first? Thankfully, also, there are like two of like five varieties of answers I th- I, I've had, because this is a really, really good, really fun question. And it's, it, it's made me think a fair bit, because I think there are, there's like a whole range of cases to be made. Um, yeah, Rins, the only sort of argument against Rins is that that win took Peko Banyar randomly chucking it down the road. Um, but, but it's, you know, it's still a Honda win in the year 2023. So it's still incredible from a rider who barely knew the bike at that point. It is phenomenal. It is probably maybe the sole correct answer. It's it's an answer that you can't not give before you go into potential other answers. Alicia Spargo's wins, both of them really good, really, really good. And I think said a lot more about Alicia's ultimate MotoGP legacy and MotoGP potential. I think, yeah, those were two fantastic wins. Um, that's, that's probably, in terms of impressive, that that would be my two answers, Rins followed by Aleish. In terms of in terms of favorite, again, like, as I said, Simon took the, the correct answer. Finally, Johan Zarker is a MotoGP race winner and we don't have to think and worry about that anymore. But also, Fabio Di Antonio in Qatar. That, that was a close second for me. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. And it's, it, it is also very impressive, because if you, if you just think back to like a few months earlier, it is, it is basically unthinkable. But it's such a beautiful win. So, so nicely done. So set up through the weekend. Such a clever, good ride. Did everything right. I'm so thankful, Pekovania. I didn't wipe him out there in misjudging uh, turn one. Shortly after the overtake, yeah, that's so. Yeah, if 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 I'm piggybacking on Simon and not picking the same answers he does, those are those are I think the two. But also, it's just it's just been a it's been a great year for winners because oh, I don't know, Matt. Do you have a do you have an answer here? It's really tricky. I'm kind of glad you two are the main pundits to answer this because. Impressive, actually. I, I can't go beyond Rins to pick a pick a standout, given what a complete positive aberration that was. In terms of favourites, there's so there's actually so many heartwarming ones, which is really nice. Like Aspargaro getting the home win, the, the Rins doing it with with LCR. I think for LCR especially, um, Zarco actually getting the win. The, the whole Digia storyline. I t- I'm going to pick a bit of a weird one for a favourite. It was actually in retrospect, it's the Bastianini win. And I think I'd put a favourite on that just because it just sets up another storyline for next year. It's partly that and partly because he looks, like I said before, he looks too good before this year to be as really as bad as he looked while he was struggling. So, yeah, of all the wins that that happened that might not have happened, that's the one that, I, that I'm probably gladdest did come to pass. And it, it makes the idea of him turning things around and being... I, I assumed this year would be Bastianini versus Banyaya for the title in the same team. And it, it kind of gives hope that storyline might yet happen, which is yet another storyline for next season, which looks ridiculous on that front. So I think, we, I think Oliver, we have given you every plausible answer there, there between us. And you, know, you, you specifically, the number, the number of winners you referred to fitted Grand Prix, not sprints. And when you're throwing the sprint wins along in there as well, um, there's there's some corkers in that one. Brad Binder in was it Argentina where he s- 
just did the basically impossible from 15th to 1st about two seconds. That was impressive. But we didn't quite give every possible answer, and I'll, I'll now correct for that, potentially, <laughs> in, in terms of the Sundays. Uh, poor Marco Bezzecchi went unmentioned because he was on a Ducati, and you know, Ducati win is hard to, to contend for most impressive win. Oh, yeah. What Bezzecchi did at India, I think, is actually a strong contender for, for one of the best rides of the season. So that's, I think that's very much up there. He was just in a completely different ballpark that entire weekend, I think. He's also very much up there, and he was a year-old bike. I, I think the thing that makes Bezeki's less impressive is that we didn't really... We, we expected race wins from him this year. Fair enough. I think we knew he was going to do it. it. It's kind of that Bastianini 2022 vibe where we thought it was going to happen. So it, that... I'm not saying it takes the shine off it, but it just makes it a little bit less. You know? Oh, I, I don't know. Go on, Val. I think the nature is different because... Bastien, it's it's different weapons for me. Bastinini's wins were largely set up by you know late race pace, so we didn't really see so much of this year. For Bezeki, it was just insane adaptability, like in which I think bodes even better potentially for the future as something that he can call upon again and again and again. So this is this is what really this is why the India weekend at a new circuit really stood out for me because you know there's no existing data, the tracks. Not the cleanest. It's a good track, but you know it's not the cleanest. And he and he basically put on a beat down on the MotoGP field and would have done it in the sprint too, if not for certain circumstances. Yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think. I think we're at risk of devaluing both what Bastianini did in 2022 and what Bez did this season because because Bastianini created this precedent that you could do that on a year old Ducati when you're actually still quite early in your MotoGP career it made what Bez was doing feel less impressive but actually no this was a rider very early in his MotoGP career on a year old bike winning races throughout the season you know at at fairly regular intervals at least until he got hurt and pulling off a a long shot title challenge at the end of the season that's absolutely mega for a team that hadn't been a MotoGP winner up to that point so basically in conclusion we think everybody is brilliant because you know we're a really positive, famously positive, um, and upbeat broadcast. Let's move on to the next question. Uh, this next one is from Patrick from Warrington. Uh, it's a trivia question, which I haven't necessarily given you two time to research. So let's see how much. No, how I, well did. You do. I did. I did. You ah, oh, Val always. I've looked it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Val's figured it out. Yeah, well this done. is entirely for him. Great. So. Um, before we go into Patrick, your question number one, I've put in the reserve, well, not the reserve pile. We will absolutely use it. It's a corker, but it's another episode coming up it fits better in. Um, so we'll go for question two. He says, hi, Simon, Val and Matt. Thanks for the great podcast. It makes an hour of work each week go much quicker and offers a great insight into the sport we love. Um, yeah, very much appreciate that. And uh, it's, it's nice. We've got people listening to it while commuting, people listening to it while it's working. No one yet saying to listen to it as a leisure activity, but um, <laughs> that's fine. Um, his- <laughs> At least... The least convincing that's fine in the history of that phrase. <laughs> it was a little bit. I, I was going to say earlier when you dismissed me for using fine in reference to Mobidelli's career that fine is a word that can have a lot of different meanings based on your facial expression. Yeah. That's not great for a podcast. Yeah. But I don't know. I'm just glad people are listening. I don't mind if it's while working, in a gym, doing, you know, sat on the beach, whatever. We appreciate we appreciate you listening. But it's just everyone's commuting or working. You said what they're doing. Anyway, the trivia question. Patrick says, when I was in Valencia for the Grand Prix a couple of weeks ago, we were having a bit of a trivia quiz between us on the Saturday evening over a couple of Guinness, and none of us knew this answer. When was the last full Grand Prix weekend in which all three classes completed their races where there was not a Spanish or Italian rider among the winning riders? So, Val, you've done the research. When did we last have that? Well, as Matt did point out, the the time was sort of a little bit limited, so there is a non-zero chance this is wrong. I, I have to I have to I have to make that clear there's a non-zero chance I've messed up. I didn't have the time to do a second pass. I'm sorry. However, Val believes that that weekend is 2016 Phillip Island with a MotoGP win for Cal Crutchlow, who is British, a Moto2 win for Tom Luthi, who is Swiss, and a Moto3 win for Brad Binder, who is South African. And Luthi that weekend in the intermediate class won by a hundredth of a second over Franco Morbidelli, <laughs> who is Italian. Yeah. So it's very close to not happening there as well. Oh, there you go. There is the answer. That's 
that's actually more recent than I thought because even though even though I think the trend of every, of this being a very Spanish Italian sport is is not as perhaps as strong as it used to be it's still a very 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 strong trend those yeah. are, as as much as this calendar expands those are still the absolute absolute heartlands actually moto 2 is a lot more spanish and italian than it was a handful of years ago in terms yeah. of front runners yeah that's true so that's sort of that's what made this possible i would say because moto 2 is more spanish full stop because it's the championship where it's easiest to buy a ride and there's more money in spain I think that's why you see mo- Spanish Moto Three riders failing upwards to Moto Two in particular. <laughs> yeah, it's it's true. It's true. You know, this feels a, a very emotional point on a slightly different, uh, it's slightly just, different angle. It's just it's building on what Jaume Masia told us in the podcast last week. You know, yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Our final set of questions uh, come from Nick Barrett in Wales. The first one is a bit of a, well, it's almost a conspiracy theory. And I think it's got a yes or no answer. So we're going to go on this. Well, let's see what, what rabbit holes we go down with this one. And then I'll let him have his other one as well. So Nick asks, was Trackhouse Racing planned to take over from RNF before the 2023 season started? It seems like that's the real reason to not allow KTM to have its extra bikes. So... What do you guys think about that? Is there any possibility this track house thing has been in the works longer than it uh, than it seems? It, it's been in the works longer than it seems with the intention of joining the MotoGP grid in 2025. Um, that has been, you know, the more and more we speak to everyone involved in the project. Um, I spent 30 minutes on a call last night to, to big boss Justin Marks and everything says they were planning some sort of a move onto the grid in 2025. Um, there was never any any plans of 2024, and they've been too open and too candid about everything for, for me to think otherwise. Plus, um, I don't think two extra KTMs would have affected that, really, because if there if there had been two extra KTMs, um, they, they weren't going to they weren't going to give the, the two grid spots that they're supposedly reserving for a factory to anyone else. Um, they weren't going to go to another satellite team if they weren't going to go to a satellite KTM team. Um, Aprilia weren't going to run six bikes next year so it, it doesn't really line up in, in any way for me that that was the thing um, the more I think about it the more I, I talk to people the more I think that the reason they didn't give KTM those grid spots is because MotoGP are, are pushing really hard to bring another factory into the championship in 2027 when the new rules come the way that we saw uh, KTM come into the championship in 2020 16 17 when the rules last changed um so no i i don't think there's anything to that theory val that way you stand as well yeah yeah seems seems to be exactly the way things have worked out uh yeah 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 i think certainly from the from the outside the track house thing felt like it came very much out of the blue like when you when you see a team getting into difficulties as rnf and, and crypto data were um for the championship to not just go okay we're gonna lose those bikes we'll cobble together a solution but go oh hang on here's a very well-known rising nascar team walking in to kind of bring a bit of american flavor to this series that hasn't had an american ride in a while that's uh that's a hell of a solution to that problem so um fair play to dawner for making that happen and, and you're fortunate in the way that justin marks and Trackhouse were interested and were were waiting in the wings um you guys mentioned about the slot potentially being held for a new manufacturer. Uh, we're getting some new manufacturer chat in one of the January podcasts where we talk about MotoGP's general growth, fan appeal, that kind of thing. And we we put your questions to Dan Rossomondo. So we will get into that um, shortly. Final question from Nick is one which could go in the Larry predictions one, but I don't think it's quite Larry enough. So we'll we'll end on a big future note. Do you guys think Pedro Acosta will win races in his first year in MotoGP? It's got a yes, no answer, but I think there'll be quite a lot of justification around it. So Val, you go first. No. <laughs> That'll do. That's Val's shortest ever answer. We'll come, Simon, you give me yours, then we'll come back for Val's reasoning after yours. Yes, I do. Um, I think he may not win on a Sunday, but I think he'll sneak out a sprint run. Um, we've seen... Basically, anything can happen in MotoGP, and if Augusto Fernandez can finish fourth in his rookie season, then Pedro Costa can win a race in his rookie season. <laughs> that, that's what it comes down to for me. The KTM is good enough. He is more than good enough. And this is an upside-down topsy-turvy championship where sometimes we pick the podium finishers out of a hat, and he will, I think, absolutely be in a position to come out and top on one of those 
stupid 44 races next season. There's lots of opportunities. Val, you were very adamant no. Why do you think it's so unlikely? I don't don't want to say it's very adamant. I was was trying to be a bit funny too, which I I hope I've slightly succeeded at. Um, I mean, the question as I read it out is, do you think Pedro Acosta will win in his first year? If the question was, do you think Pedro Acosta might potentially win in his first year or is talented enough or has the bike to do it? Uh. <laughs> Simon is so unhappy with me immediately. And I and I, I understand. But the question as, as it is phrased is, do you think it will happen? Which means, do I give it a more than 50% probability of happening in my head? The answer to that is no. Uh, Pedro Acosta had a really good MotoGP uh, debut in the test. I am very confident that he has the talent to win many a MotoGP race in the future. I am very confident KTM has the uh, engineering know-how and trajectory and finance to win many a MotoGP race and MotoGP title in the future. 2024 just seems too early for me. It seems too early for me when there's a Mark Marquez on a Ducati all of a sudden. It seems too early for me when there's no reason to believe the 24 Ducati will be a dud. It seems too early when the grid's so good. Pedro Costa will be battling a, a knowledge and experience deficit that is will be more pronounced than what he had to face in Moto3 and Moto2. Even, you know, he was an instant uh, sensation in Moto3, but he did ride those bikes before. He was good out of the blocks in Moto2, but he didn't, like, win in his first season. The championship, he didn't win races, but he didn't win the championship. Did he win races? I should have looked it up. Anyway, <laughs> cut that out if you Johnny did. Cut that out if you didn't. Johnny I don't know. Johnny, you know what to do. Yeah. Um, I just, I don't think it's, I wouldn't call it likely. Possible. Sure. He's very good. Likely. I I don't see it, honestly. I just, I think MotoGP is too, there's too much going on right now. That's... Yeah, and I didn't even think of the sprint or Grand Prix distinction. I was, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to be brave and I'm going to say, no sprint wins, I think, and no Grand Prix wins this upcoming year. After that, sure, whatever, fifty of them. Simon, you feel like you've got a counter disagreement to come. I just feel like all the listeners have are just listening to Val breaking down Nick's question. Um, I have just got a valuable insight into what it's like to work with him every day. Um, (laughs) Val's delve into semantics was basically the podcast equivalent of a drop score rule that was what what happened there accountability is important and it's you know there's (laughs) Uh, not in this podcast that's not what we do (laughs) (laughs) producer Johnny the other day said he was basing his votes in the 2024 lineups ranked um, feature on the website entirely in our podcast opinions. So I was like, oh, that's good. We're kind of sane, consistent, and rational then. That should, uh, glad, glad we could be a service, Johnny. Basically, any team could have won Val's vote by putting Firmin Aldegar into their squad for next season. <laughs> that's, where was, that's where all his Pedro hatred comes from. A narrative is forming that I do not like, <laughs> that I did not sign up for, that I do not think accurately reflects uh, my viewpoint. Also, I've just looked it up. Pedro Costa did win two years in his uh, two races in his Moto Two rookie season. So yeah, he did. Johnny, do with that information as as you will. Poor, poor, poor producer Johnny. Um, it, I'm going to answer this question as well. I think Pedro Costa will win in his first year, and I'm just I'm just basically citing the Miguel Oliveira rule for that on the grounds that Oliveira won on a Tech Three bike. So, and I'm not by that. I'm not not in his first year. No, 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 no. But I would say Acosta, for everything we've known so far, is magna- is a, a magnitude better as a MotoGP prospect than Oliveira. So basically, on very simple, Acosta is a degree better than Oliveira. Therefore, if Oliveira, with a little bit of experience, could win on for this team with this bike, then uh, uh, another time that's very open and competitive too, then someone as good as Acosta can win a bit sooner than him. So I'm gonna, and I, I just love a Larry prediction anyway. So I'm gonna say, yeah, of course he will. Also worth noting that Brad Bender on a KTM won his third ever MotoGP race. Yeah, very true. Yeah, factory team, admittedly, but yeah, yeah, but but I think the yeah, I think at the start of the season, the uh, the fact the the gas gas bike is going to be quite close to factory. Um, They're going to start on a good machine. Yeah, no, but it was it was was an exceptionally goofy season. But yes, yeah, there's a bit of a trend of people who turn up at uh, Tech Three, particularly as rookies, having a a horrible time and it going badly. Augusto Fernandez is an exception, but it wasn't a standout season. It's just a a better season than you would have expected. uh, But still, not yeah, we we appreciated his high points, but they were a bit under the radar still. 
I really feel like with Acosta, this is where the fact that Acosta has been put on this bike at Polis Bagaro's expense it has to be KTM learning from where it has gone wrong with some rookies recently going, actually, we cannot afford to lose or alienate or waste this guy. This is this has got to work. And um, that's why I can I, I think this will be a very well supported tech three and it will have every chance to do well with Acosta. And if he's as good as he as is every indication that he is so far through these last few years in, in Moto three and Moto two, then um then it's gonna be it's gonna be special and I think it's gonna start being special pretty quickly as well. Like you say, it's it's the well sorted bike. So you know early, early rounds could be quite could be quite interesting. And that is it for listener questions for now. But that is not it for us answering the questions you submitted. Like I say, we've got a prediction special. We've got the kind of MotoGP fan appeal special coming up. We will be going 2025 rider market crazy um, during January. So keep an ear out for all of that. I have kept all the questions that we didn't use today back so that we can answer them at some point. I haven't quite worked out what to do with the ones that were not about MotoGP, but we'll figure that out. I promise if you ask the question, we'll find a way to answer it before, before we retire from podcasting. Um, Simon Val, thank you very much listeners thank you very much for your questions we'll be back sometime around Christmas with us three plus our boss Glenn Freeman having a vociferous argument about the top 10 riders of the year uh, which will be a lot of fun to try to keep in line Um, we'll catch up with you then The Athletic